Mixed martial arts? Ridiculous. Why I never. This is a serious sport with serious competitors. I mean, we're dealing with life and death. The risk of permanent injury. Surely this is one of the most well-organized and scrutinized sports on the planet. You surprise me to how shit you are. Sorry, are, are you new here? MMA is far from perfect. Not that it's had a long time to develop, but in the time that it has, we've gone from blood sport to Cobra Kai, a more digestible package of violence presentable to audiences around the world. That's a bit extreme, but still often there's more carnage than a mariachi shootout, and with that, a great deal of risk to the fighters, the promoters, and the sanctioning bodies. But regardless of that, there still exists a questionable amount of issues that plague the sport, some of them more ridiculous than the Steven Seagal book of original MMA techniques. I'm Balian from MMA On Point, and this is 10 Ridiculous MMA Facts That Defy Logic. Number 10. No way out of a Zufa contract. I don't think Dana at any point has asked anyone to sign in blood, but those UFC contracts seem pretty soul-binding. We've talked about one-fight contracts being very common in the early days of the sport, but now it's all about locking someone down for as long as possible. Or, you know, if you're Zufa, keeping them forever. Remember that time GSP went on the MMA Hour and told Ariel Hawani, Well, right now, I'm free agent. The UFC had been sold to WME in the middle of his contract negotiation with Uncle Lorenzo and the Zufa offer was pulled off the table. GSP hired a lawyer to help him because he wanted to make a return at UFC 206 in Toronto, Canada and gave the UFC a deadline to offer him a fight. But when they didn't comply, his lawyer supposedly terminated his contract and he told everyone he was a free agent. But the UFC released a statement that said that was all bollocks and he was still signed to Zufa, even though they didn't actually own the company anymore. According to them, though, it was too much of a financial risk to have him fight at 206. Go figure, but I mean, he literally couldn't get out of his contract. After the details of Eddie Alvarez's UFC contract came out during a lawsuit, Jonathan Snowden went through it piece by piece and he found some pretty wild stuff. He passed it on to Professor Zev Eigen from Northwestern University Labor and he called it the worst contract he'd seen in the sports entertainment field. He called the sections about fighter pay confidentiality a complete violation of the National Labor Relations Act. He said the Champions Clause was potentially a violation of the 13th Amendment, essentially forcing someone to work for you, and that the section on the UFC being able to cut fighters was one that was unilaterally benefiting the employer. Basically, it's completely one-sided and just unfair. There was also a ton of stuff about media obligations, matching clauses, image rights. It seems ridiculous, but this is how the UFC contracts work. Obviously, there's an ongoing antitrust lawsuit brought forward by fighters to help combat some of these supposed tactics. Perhaps that will help us see some change in the future. I mean, let's face it, the fighters probably needed someone like the heavyweight champion Nganu to draw a line in the sand. And what's happening with his contract? Well, shit, we're still about to find out. Number 9. Your promoter can also be your manager. If you can't see the immediate conflict of interest here, I just don't know what to tell you. If you are promoting an MMA event or you have some kind of official position, of course you're going to favor your own fighters and give them the best fights possible. Pay them as much as possible. Get that 10%, baby. Can you imagine this in other sports? If Scott Boris owned the Yankees? That's basically IRL Jerry Springer for those of you who don't know. The point is, no, it wouldn't happen because of course there'd be favoritism amongst your clients. I mean, when Dana White started with the UFC, he was still managing Chuck and Tito. Another example is someone like Mike Kogan of Bellator, who has represented fighters such as Nate Diaz, but he instead relinquished all his management duties to try and create more of a boundary. Fair dues, Mike. Was a longtime vice president and matchmaker over at the World Series of Fighting, when that was around before it became the PFL, but all the time he was running Dominance MMA Management, which had a shit ton of WSOF fighters on its books. I mean, the guy was the promotional matchmaker. That whole business ended quite 
quite messily actually with a lawsuit and a breach of the NAC ruling. But you can see why this was a problem. And this is still going on at promotions all across the world. So welcome to mixed martial arts. You don't have to be crazy to live here, but it helps. Number eight, turning pro is kind of whatever. In most sports, you start as an amateur. If you're half decent, you might get on a semi-pro team. Or if you're lucky and you have the sporting institution in the United States, you have the collegiate level. And then if you're still serious enough and have the ability to get signed, you can join a professional team and call yourself a pro athlete. Make your first million, blow it on NFTs, start all over again. In MMA, yeah, we kind of do it differently. Obviously, there is a difference in amateur MMA and professional, not just the rules and the different sanctioning that takes place. The fights will go on your official record, but you essentially just have to fight for money. Yes, you need to fight for a promotion that does pro fights so there is a certain level you have to be but you can essentially just turn pro whenever you want there isn't a certain amount of fights you have to have or a skill level you have to be at or any criteria at all really other than just fighting another human for cash on the flip side you can spend as long as you want at the amateur level and get as little or as much i suppose experience as it's necessary hell you could be 20 no destroying the amateur scene you just probably won't find anyone that wants to fight you though and yeah i guess it's a little archaic as a structure for a sport but man when you make this which, oh, I bet it feels great. Ah, so happy, I can't even feel my arms. Number seven, broadcasting across different platforms. Okay, here's a scenario for you. Oh yeah, Dave, that UFC, mate, that's quite good, isn't it? I think I might start watching them all, like, all the time. Oh yeah, mate, that sounds good. Yeah, all you need to do is just get the Fight Pass app so you can watch the early prelims, and then you, you just got to download and make sure you can get ESPN Plus so you can watch the next couple of fights. You're keeping up all right. Okay, and then you got to switch over when the pay-per-view starts. What do you mean you forgot your login details? The main event's about to start. Yeah. Unfortunately, watching a UFC event isn't exactly the easiest process, is it? Now, of course, that depends on your location geographically. I've heard some nightmarish stories from friends in other countries who've explained their own painstaking process, switching constantly between several different digital services and live feeds as the bomb bombardment of adverts start to drag an eight-fight undercard into sleepy morning time. I mean, if we had one service, one subscription, one monthly fee, man, I will manifest that shit for all of us. The UFC has changed television partners over the years, and every time we all have to download some new app. Who remembers when the prelims were on Facebook? Ah, simpler times, my friends. Fight Pass is a great idea, but in terms of how easy it is to actually watch an entire show, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous what's expected of the everyday MMA fan. Number six, the rules are super inconsistent. We basically went from having no rules to having a few rules to make sure people aren't getting maimed to a set of unified rules that finally saw some recognition and helped get the sport licensed across all of America. But now slowly, things are getting confusing again. The name unified rules has become a bit of an oxymoron just because, well, they aren't unified anymore. State to state, we've seen more and more changes start to take place over the years. You know, the definition of a down fight is always a fun one. Head to New Jersey and let someone stick one hand on the mat and have a field day figuring that one out. The problem is also that we don't really have a system in place to simply change these rules. If everyone agreed something like knees to the head on the canvas was a good idea to bring back, that update to the unified rules would have to go around to each state and they could, you know, just choose not to accept the new changes, like a bunch of states did in 2018 when they changed some things around scoring, kidney shots, and the down fighter rule. Some states adopted the changes, some refused them, some adopted some but kept some of the old one. It's just so fucking confusing. It's not just the rulings, but the systems we have in place to establish them. The word unified has just become a farce at this point. Number five, there's no penalties for officials. Usually, if someone gets something wrong at work, you have a few consequences. You know, depends how bad you messed up. Remember when Peter Parker didn't get those pizzas delivered in 30 minutes? 
pizza time. We are at the point in MMA where referees and officials have made so many mistakes that they have literally become famous for doing so. You can't say names like Yamasaki or Mazagati and some others without instantly associating them to their various list of fuck-ups, which included letting people take some unnecessary beatings, literally just not stopping fights when people are tapping, or bad calls that seriously affected the outcome, the athletes' livelihoods, their careers moving forward. And it's not just the refs. Some of the judges have been just as bad. But what were the consequences? Well, none, really. Shit, they didn't even have to make a statement about why they did what they did. I mean, most of the time, the good ones do, and it's certainly a job that has more chaos than an intersection in burnout. But yeah, when do we start holding these obvious and avoidable mistakes accountable? I mean, so much is on the line for those 15 to 25 minutes. The people in charge or making sure everything stays within the rules. Heck, even the people scoring it should have some level of responsibility for the decisions they make, with appropriate consequences for negligence outside of the seriously unpredictable nature of the sport, obviously. It's baffling that their word is final, and that's the end of it. That leads me to my next point. Number four, refs making a mistake and not being able to go back. This is one that's had most of us banging our head against the wall for some time now. It just seems so illogical that we can't do simple things like watch a replay and then make a decision. Or if a ref makes a mistake, they can't just reset the fight and let the action carry on. But no, apparently all and any decisions have to be made in the moment as it happens in the cage in real time upon first glance. And once the call's been made, that's it. It can't be undone. Even if both fighters disagree, if they want to continue, even if it would be much simpler to make it a no contest, no. The first answer only, please. Granted, in 2020, there were some changes to the replay system before it could only be used to look at a fight ending sequence. Once the replay had been called for, the fight was officially over. So stupid, man. Remember it all happened because Mike Rodriguez had apparently bullshotted Ed Herman? The replay showed it was all fine, but the ref wasn't able to consult that. It would have meant that the fight had to be stopped immediately. Turns out Ed was, well, he was faking. Even Bisping called him out. What kind of Academy Award are you giving to Ed Herman right now? I want to know who his acting coach is. The fight carried on and what should have been a TKO for Mike turned into a loss and he was finished in the next round. What about that time Eduardo heard he thought Drew Dober was sleeping? Oh, he wasn't. Cool. Oh, okay. I mean, if you know anything about jiu-jitsu, you, you can see it's fine. Should we carry on then? No? Great. The fight's over. But now, though, at least in Nevada, replay can be used at any point during the fight. Way a small victory in one state. I get that decisions have to be made quickly and there isn't always time to ponder over everything that happens in the cage, but if something clearly was a mistake, there should be no question. If it can be undone, let's do it and get back to a fair contest. Number three, the 10-point must system. I don't know for the life of me why they call it a 10-point must system, when in reality they only really use three numbers, 10, 9, and 8, and if by some stroke of the MMA gods you went Super Saiyan that day, a 7. I get that MMA follows the scoring conventions of boxing and that you want some kind of system that allows each round to be scored individually so you can differentiate who was the most effective and when. But come on, is the 10-point system really the best way to do it? In other combat sports like Jiu-Jitsu and wrestling, points are scored for individual moves that are completed or half-completed. I'm not saying this would translate into MMA, I mean shit how many moves are there, but can you imagine a 10-point must system in jiu-jitsu? Pride had a system where they just, you know, scored the fight as a whole. Logically. Cool, that guy started well, but that guy was stomping on his head at the end. Give it to him. I mean, rarely is it that simple, but their two main criteria were damage, similar to the UFC, and the attempt to finish the fight by knockout or submission. So, seems pretty logical to me. You only have to Google Pride controversial decisions, and sure, you'll find a few. Big Nog and Rico. The Rampage Shogun one was pretty sus, but if you change that to UFC, 
my god, there are pages and pages. Granted, there have been a hell of a lot more UFC fights, and ultimately, I guess it's more subjective than a 10-point system, but we're already putting the livelihoods of these fighters into the officials' hands anyway, so... But again, what are the actual chances of getting this changed? Well, we might as well look forward to that football pitch-sized octagon that Rogan keeps banging on about. Number two, the 12 to 6 elbow. If you can break a brick, you can break a man. That's the saying, right? Well, shit, if you can crush through six stacks of English clay with your elbows, that surely translates to a fight, right? Oh, you want evidence? Um, I saw it on TV. Okay, well, that's not technically true. Doctors had apparently seen an IFC match where 12 to 6 elbows were used to the back of the head and thought it would be life-threatening. So when they were at the table with UFC Pride and International Fighting Championship officials, they refused to sanction any rule set that allowed them. I mean, logically, McCarthy spoke up and reminded them that shots to the back of the head had already been dis- discussed as illegal, so he didn't see a problem with them, but Nick Lembo wrote them into the unified rules as being illegal. Anyway, this isn't even the point. One, yes, it's kind of silly they are illegal, I agree, but you know what's even more silly? The fact that they are only illegal from the 12 to 6 position, because let's face it, they almost do the same thing when fired from any other angle. Both Joe Lozon and El Kakui showed us just how effective they can be from your back. I mean, Travis Brown literally patterned his own sideways version against the cage. Heck man, you could throw them 11 to 5, and they wouldn't tend technically be illegal. All it needs is just a slight angle adjustment. If you ask me, yeah, it's just pretty ridiculous that we still have this clock-shaped divine angle of attack for a specific strike and rule that was questionable 20 years ago. Number one, how weight cuts work. There are a few things worse for you than a fight. I think Luke Thomas recently called the damage fighters endure slow maiming. And by far the worst thing you can do before you go into a life-threatening experience like that is basically starve and dehydrate yourself, sometimes to within an inch of your life. That's MMA, baby. One extreme point of death to the other. We all know why fighters weight cut. It's obviously an advantage to be bigger and stronger than your opponent. Yeah, it goes both ways. Severe weight cuts can affect cardio, sometimes the amount of damage you can absorb, and the whole process when you think about it is completely fucking ridiculous. Fighters spend eight weeks getting their bodies in the best shape they've ever been in, only to push it to the point of death just two days before the contest. And the weight itself? I mean, it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, you weighed 170 pounds, but for how long? 10 minutes? I suppose it creates an even playing field for everyone to fit in, but when you put that number next to Kamaru Usman as he walks into the cage to defend his welterweight title, air quotations, it couldn't be further from the truth. One championship have developed these supposed hydration tests that prevent weight cutting, but I mean, what the fuck is going on there? No one really knows. Certain fighters have definitely found a way to get around that system, and honestly, short of eliminating weight classes, I don't know what the actual fix to the problem is. But hey, I'm not here to give you that answer today. No, I'm just some nerd pointing out that this sport is pretty messed up in a lot of different ways. At least we've got each other. A big shout out to Luke Taylor for editing this video. You can find him and some of his amazing artwork on Twitter at cool2me underscore. Shout out to Ben Rosette and the excellent music he provided during the intro video. His music can be found on streaming platforms everywhere. There is a link in the description and follow him at Ben Rosette on Instagram and on Twitter. Thank you very much for watching everyone today. Please go ahead and like and subscribe if you did enjoy the content. We upload at least three videos every week for your viewing pleasure. Go ahead and leave a comment below if you want to join in the discussion and follow us on Twitter at MMA on Point and myself at Balian underscore plays. You can now jump in and join the community discord as well if you want to continue the discussion further and I hope you've enjoyed yourselves. I'll see you in the next one.